Punks podcast. This is your host Craig Biderman bringing you another conversation with an everyday educator and a daily disruptor in the world of education and beyond. <laughs> uh, today I am talking with my friend Bill Huff. Bill Huff works in Washington D.C. and does a lot of really good work uh, in the world of summer housing and conferences, which is something we've never talked about on this podcast, and I'm really excited to share that conversation. Bill is also the conference chair for this year's ACPA conference, which is in Boston, and I'll be going to it, and I'll be participating in it, as we'll discuss later, but I am very stoked because Bill and I have a really great conversation about education, and he tells me a lot about uh, what it was like moving from the Midwest to the East Coast to become a full-time educator out here. This week you also get to hear tunes, new tunes from the band Point North. Their their new EP is called Retrograde, and it is very good. Uh, Point North is currently on that big tour that Katie Ham, my best friend, is on uh, on tour with, with Sharp Tooth, and as it is, uh, Point North uh, just put out this album through We Are Triumphant, and it is pretty great. I think it's like if Post Malone were a pop-punk band. That's at least what the first thing that came to my mind, and I actually think that that works really well. If you don't like it, tough, tough shit. I think it's great. Uh, and Katie vouched for them as great people, and if you're great people in the eyes of my best friend, then you're good people in my eyes, and I will support you. So... We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, as we've mentioned in the past few episodes, go to patreon.com slash artofsurvival. Uh, you can support the work that we do here in our home and in other gigs and all over the country right now uh, so that we, you can be a monthly donor and support us and the work that we do. That would be really, really great. Um, and I'm not going to dilly-dally too much more. Uh, I'm going to get into this conversation with Bill Huff. Hope you really like it. Uh, all right, I've got my friend Bill Huff uh, here digitally with me. How you doing, Bill? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well for a long Tuesday at work. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, nice to be home, but I, I already know that I have to be in bed and then get right up again and do it all over again. Yeah. It was a long day for us. We're, we were supposed to have snow down here in D.C., but it has just turned into rain. So mm. it's, a, it's a pleasant surprise. So 
that's the time of year. We got a nice rainstorm the uh, like last week, and we had a snowstorm like a couple days before. Here it comes. Yeah. So, well, here in D.C., it's you know, if it rains too hard, we panic a little bit here. So, um, it's it's an interesting place. To, you know, growing up in Iowa, um, where they prepare you know for six feet of snow here, you know, we get six inches and it's a catastrophe. So <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective. That's how it is back home uh, in Oregon. We're so used to rain. It's fine. But the second we get a little bit of snow, people abandon their cars on the highway. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of weird. Yes. So Massachusetts takes care of snow really well. So I'm okay with that. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if you, I lived there for two years. So that was my first job out of graduate school. Um, at Brandeis. And so it was great being in a city that had a cohesive snow plan. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you miss it until you're in a place that doesn't have it. So. Mm. So, Bill, can you tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do and where you come from? Sure. Uh, Bill Huff, uh, he, him, his pronouns. Um, I currently work at Georgetown University, um, where I am the associate director for summer programs within the Office of Residential Living. So what that means in uh, layperson terms, I sort of oversee all our summer housing, so housing for individuals and for all our conference groups. Um, Been at Georgetown for, um, gosh, 10 and a half years. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, it's a very long time, especially in like higher education student affairs perspective. Um, it's not what the path that I thought I was going to have for myself. You know, when I was in graduate school, um, which I did at the University of Iowa, um, it was sort of a, uh, I was one of those people that was like, I'm going to live all over the country and then hopefully live all over the world. And I'm only going to be in each job for two years. And then, you know, I will sort of jet set and live in new places. And, um, that was the intention when I came here, uh, so, you know, I was only at Brandeis for two years right out of graduate school. Um, had a really lovely experience, but came here to Georgetown to supervise full-time staff and, uh, you know, did that for three years and then took over our summer high school programs for three years. And I've been doing this for five and a half years. So, um, you know, there's a lot of life stuff that happened, right? Uh, you know, it's um, the unexpected things that you, you don't expect to plan for. Mostly, you know, I met my partner here. Um, and that has sort of kept me in the Washington, D.C. area for the past ten and a half years. So, because mm. um, I didn't mention where, uh, born and raised in Iowa. I think yeah. I mentioned that with the snow, but I think that's a big part of who I am. You know, I'm the oldest of six kids. Um, there, you know, I, it's not just that I'm the oldest of six, but there are 21 years between me and my youngest sister. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, um, which is, you know, I am closer in age to my parents than I am to my two youngest sisters, which I think has created an interesting dynamic in our family, right? Um, huh, actually, I'm 23 years younger than my oldest sibling. There it is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's just a different family dynamic, right? So for me, um, uh, you know, being close to family, you know, that's been important. At the same time, I think born and raised in Iowa. And I think I knew most of my whole life that like I wanted to live in a bigger city. And so hence the, after, you know, doing my undergrad, um, in Iowa, um, I went right into grad school. And then, you know, when I was job searching, I sort of only looked on the coast, right. It was like 
Boston, New York, DC, Seattle, and San Francisco. Those were the big places. And then ended up at Brandeis and been on the East Coast ever since. So that's awesome. So you, so educationally, did you think that this is the route you were going to go? Like when you first thought you were going to get into education, like did you go to grad school for higher education or student affairs? Oh, yeah, that's a really great question. So my undergraduate career is career degree is in um, uh, uh, student, uh, sorry, uh, speech communication and theater. Okay. So I, I wanted to be an actor. That was the original goal of going to, you know, they say you're supposed to do what you love. And I was like a big old theater nerd in high school. Um, got to college and, you know, one of my advisors said, we need to do something other than just theater to make you a little bit more marketable. Mm. Um, really small Catholic um, institution where I went for my undergrad. So that's where I picked up a secondary ed uh, double major, and then I had a minor in English language arts. Um, so I, th- I think education has always been in my blood. Uh, my dad was a teacher slash high school administrator. Um, I don't think I don't think I knew that's what I wanted, but I knew that centering learning um, and being in spaces where learning was sort of the driving force was something I was always drawn towards. Um, so yeah, I went to grad school for uh, student development and post-secondary education. It's not what it's called anymore. Uh, uh, they've become a higher ed program. It was a little bit more immersed in like a counseling field. Um, so yes, it was education, but it was, you know, it was, we took micro counseling classes and had like a two-way mirror and recorded ourselves um, talking to fake clients. And so, uh, which I think has been really beneficial for me um, in my ability to sort of connect and, uh, you know, engage in dialogue in this work in higher education and that I got a really good foundation of sort of how people talk and being aware of sort of how I might show up in certain spaces. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now when you, when you got into the field um, and making the move from like, the Midwest to the East coast, did you notice like a massive difference in uh, like mentality or even the way things are taught or conveyed? How big of a change was that for you? It might've been a while ago now. So I don't know if that's a... <laughs> definitely been a while. <laughs> I don't know what that adjustment was like for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I mentioned, um, you know, so, so I identify as, as gay and I've, you know, known for a very long time. I didn't come out until graduate school. Um, that was sort of a really immersive experience for me, you know, taking student development theory where literally I was overlaying my own development over these sort of, you know, developmental theories was really good for me. Um, it sort of accelerated, I would say, my own uh, development. So that that shift from Iowa to Boston um yeah, it was different, and um, but I think it was a different that I was actively seeking out. I think I knew, you know, I came from a really small town in Iowa. It was like under a thousand people, no grocery store. You know, I remember there being one out person, and they were really brave, but you know, I don't think it made their life easier, right? And one of the things I sort of knew was like, and maybe it's because what I'd seen in popular culture and movies is that an easier slash better life. And I don't, we can probably dig into what that means, but what the world tells us, right? The universe through pop culture told me as this 
you know, closeted gay boy in Iowa was get to a big city and things get easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think moving did make it a little easier. You know, I'd, I'd come out to everyone um, by the time I had moved, but moving to a place where you get to sort of start off with an identity that sort of more aligns with who you are, right? So to me, it was like an, an ability to sort of not be closeted, to sort of live my life fully, to sort of fully accept and, you know, embrace who I was. So that 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 was powerful in Boston. You know, I loved the density of a city. Um, like there's something about a city that I, you know, some people, I love also quiet, but I, I really do love noise. And yeah. I'm one of those people that like thrives off that. So was the work different? I think people are very direct on the East Coast. <laughs> um, uh, there's a thing called Iowa Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, Midwest nice. My partner's from yeah. Wisconsin, so I'm used yeah. to that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't learn direct how to give direct feedback. I didn't learn how to be honest sometimes when I was not satisfied with something. You sort of say, oh, that's fine, which is sort of like, it's probably not fine, and um, but we'll cope with it, right? That's something I sort of learned as a, as a mechanism in the Midwest. And I think moving to the East Coast where people are pretty direct um, with what their needs are, and sometimes that can be harsh, I think what I appreciated about that was the ability to to be able to sort of actualize my feelings. And if I wasn't happy with something, to be able to sort of learn how to give voice to that. So mm. that is something I've appreciated about the work out east is that, yes, there's a directness. But I think I've been able to sort of mesh that with that Midwest nice, right? Like you can be direct and still center kindness. Mm. Um, and sometimes being direct is kind, right? It's like... I'm just trying to tell you how I feel, what your impact has been. So for me, um, it doesn't mean I got it right. You know, I think it's a pendulum when it comes to how we operate within certain spaces. And, you know, at times I was too nice and at times probably I was too East Coast direct. Um, But I think that's been an evolution, sort of trying to figure that out for myself. Hmm. Hmm. That's fair. Um, Yeah. So you've been in D.C. for a while. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen the landscape of... DC change over the what decade you've been there. Yeah. What do you feel is like the overall um, like kind of mood or um, sense around education? Just seeing like probably bumping into policymakers and you have no idea. Like being yeah. in the epicenter of politics and even education. Um, what has that experience been like? I think, um, I mean, I think the first thing that sort of comes to mind for me around being in D.C. is the impact it has on our students, right? I think, um, you know, I've been at Georgetown for 10 and a half years, and I think about um, there is uh, a way that politics and how one navigates space through a political lens infiltrates all the work that we do, right? Our students are hyper-conscious of perception and um, I also think it's impacted like their their idea of what consequences are. So, you know, working in um, things where, you know, Georgetown is a prestigious institution and there are a lot of our students have really high lofty goals where, you know, they don't just want to run a company. They want to be, you know, a politician. They want to be um, an ambassador one day to a foreign em- a country. Um, their, their ambitions are really high and they understand that sometimes small mistakes uh, can have a negative impact, right? But sometimes I'm the person who's making them wake up and realize that, like, the poor decisions they've made, while, yes, they're college students and still figuring out who they are as individuals, 
that, you know, our behavior has consequences. And so I know that sounds really weird, but I think there's a hyper awareness of being a, a higher education professional that works in DC and that the way we interact with students, they are, um, when they get in trouble, it's just like mom and dad aren't going to find out, but like, I'm not gonna be able to come president anymore. Hmm. Like that, that is literally something that they are thinking about. Um, and so the consequences, and there's a, there's very much like a single track mentality to the students, right? You know what I'm saying? So let's like, I'm hmm. supposed to get done with school in four years. I'm supposed to have this really special internship between my sophomore and junior year. I need to pass this class with an A so I can get into this program, or I need to be fluent in this language so I can, you know, enter the foreign service. Um, and it takes one small step off that path sometimes to to unsettle these students, right? And I think of that pressure because um, they put it on themselves, but I think they, they absorb it from the culture and the communities they come in, right? Their parents are also pretty significant folks. Um, and I think what we see that the impact there is um, the pressure and stress, I think, that it hurt. Oh, you guys said you could say hit or hurts our students or both. Um, so that's, that's something I think about being in D.C. that I'm not sure everyone would connect, right? That, you know, you think of this being a very political place, but I think that where you are impacts who you are, right? I think that's a pretty um, understandable thing. So for me, that's that's an important part of my work down here is understanding and sometimes giving permission to students to like, it's okay to make mistakes or it's okay to not know what you want to do. Um, that probably gives them a bunch of anxiety. Oh, I'm sure it does. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, one of our roles in higher education is um, – I think so. I think a lot of the people in this world are very product oriented in their orientation around approaching goals in their life. So I think of like, I just need to get here. I need to get to X, right, to be successful. But they don't think about the process of how they get to X, right? Like, who have they not built significant relationships or who have they not taken care of, including themselves, um, to get to X? And I think. In my work, I've learned that process matters just as much as product. Hmm. Um, so for me, you know, sometimes I'm the first person to say no to these people. Yeah. Like, you know, like they've, they've, they've either, um, they've had enough connections. They've been able to sort of, they know how to be strategic in their conversations and dialogue. And sometimes I'm like, no, like this is not going to happen, right? You can't do this. You can't treat people this way. You made a mistake and you have to be held accountable for your behavior. So, um, yeah. So yes, it does give them anxiety and, you know, I'm not just like creating anxiety and then moving out of the space. Hopefully I'm there to sort of move through the space with them, right. To sort of say like, what does it mean that you have anxiety about this? So, and I'm not a trained counselor, but you know, I think, we have skill sets around how to be in community with people and sort of engage in conversation with them. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. So you say that you work with like, uh, setting up conferences for summer work. I dabbled a little bit in being a summer RA once and, ma- uh, managing a bunch of conferences, um, and the type of turnover that looks like and how, difficult that can be and you're actually the first person i've spoken to that does this kind of work can you just like explain what that looks like and how you make it a full-time job year-round <laughs> sure that is, <laughs> that is a common question i get like so you run summer so what do you do the other nine months right <laughs> um so i mean i think um 
yeah, it's an intense. There's a lot of turnover. So at Georgetown, um, we are we sort of take over housing from the academic year team right at commencement. So one of the things being in D.C. is um, all of our commencements in D.C. are at the same time. So what we find is like the hotel rates like quadruple or, you know, quintuple. So, you know, a hotel that's normally $100 is like $400 during commencement. So one of the things we offer at Georgetown is commencement housing for families. So um, about 500 people use rooms on campus so that they can afford. I mean, we just charge $50 a night. So hmm. um, so that is the first thing we do. And then um, sort of work with a variety of, of external and internal partners, you know, a variety of, of camps and leadership conferences. You know, we're in D.C. We've talked about politics. Um, a lot of our uh, programs have sort of a political bend in them, right? So, you know, we have a group of... Um, uh, sort of like high school teachers who come and study like the U.S. Constitution. Um, there's a lot of sports camps. Um, think of us as sort of a mashup of hotel slash summer camp. What my team does is make sure that um, the rooms are ready and clean and that we have keys for them and then sort of support those folks while they're here, um, help them work through if there are issues in their rooms, right? A light stops working, an air conditioner doesn't work to the, to the level we want. And then when folks leave, uh, make sure that the rooms get cleaned and turn over. We have about 5,200 beds at Georgetown, but last summer we had over 11,800 people who came and stayed over an 11-week period. So if you can imagine that there's a lot of turnover, you know, some people are only here for two days and some people are here for 10 weeks. So what my job is to manage, you know, we hire 120 students and they're the ones who do sort of are on the ground, sort of supporting our, our guests and helping them check in or if they lock themselves out of their room or need a package. Um, and I work with a bunch of other professionals who sort of help us support that in that work. What I do like the other three and a half months is in the fall, we, all these people have to sign contracts. And so my job is like helping them work through what their enrollment numbers are going to be and what floors they want to be on. Um, it doesn't sound like it takes a lot of time, but uh, you know, we work with over 90 different groups. And the one thing is, is that, you know, some people are really great with email and some people are really not great with email. And so my job is to sort of engage those customers and, you know, while also working with ex existing customers, but bringing in new folks. So we do some recruitment stuff, lots of tours. And in the spring, like I said, we hire 120 students. So mm. my spring right now is totally committed to uh, recruiting and interviewing and then training 120 undergraduate students to go from, you know, being students to hopefully being good customer service agents um, and how we sort of support our summer guests and summer students. So it, it's, it's a it's a cycle, just like I think during the academic year, what I think what's really different about summer is the pace, you know, mm. every Sunday, you know, when we're in our peak time, we 3000 people leave campus and within two days we clean all the rooms and another 2,500 people show up. Um, That's unreal. That does not happen in the academic year. And so no. it creates a really different culture, um, a really fast pace. Um, gives us a lot of chances to be innovative and in that, you know, if something doesn't go right, we can sort of rethink what we're doing. And, you know, within probably two weeks, 75% of these people will not be here anymore. So we can try something new, you know, if we're not communicating effectively or if we're not serving folks the way we want to. So, um, but it's a very different sort of approach to sort of, 
working with students because most of my interactions are with our students as employees and not as just students, right? Even though some of them might be taking classes and they're still students. Um, it's a different relationship I have with a lot of them. So, hmm. Yeah, it seems like you probably take your vacation uh, during the regular school year then, I imagine. <laughs> September is my like jam. September is my quiet time. So... <laughs> When it's ramping up for everyone else. I know. And what's, what's, you know, the only benefit is, is like, because everyone else in the world is pretty busy, or at least, you know, here in America, right? People are starting school both, you know, at all the levels. So if you're a parent, you can't travel a lot. So flights are really great in September. Yeah. Uh, the downside is there aren't that many of us who have free time in September. Yeah. <laughs> so it tends to be me going back home to Iowa to see the family, taking some time away, relaxing, you know, mm. catching my breath. So that's fair. Yeah. Right, quick break from the podcast just to bring you a quick reminder that we're part of the Connect EDU network. The Connect EDU network connects the unique perspectives and expert insight of higher education through podcasting. We take it a little bit beyond, but I think that that's why we're part of this network because we uh, uh, allow ourselves to go into the scene, into the DIY culture and everything else. But a lot of the podcasts in this network bring in professors, marketing directors, uh, deans of students, all over the all over the education realm, and we're a nice little niche that breaks away from that as well. Go to connectedu.network to learn more about all of the fantastic podcasts that exist in the network that we are a part of. We're a proud partner of uh, ConnectEDU, and if you want to learn more, you can also go listen to the conversation I had with Dustin Rams a few months ago. That's where we uh, ended up having a good discussion on what it looked like to run education-based podcasts, because that's what he does. He's the higher ed geek. Uh, that's that, uh, that's all I got to say about that. Connectedu.network. Go check out all the other great podcasts and get to listening. You have a pretty important role right now working for ACPA. Um, can you explain to folks exactly what you're doing and... Uh, what's coming up? Sure. Um, so I, um, was lucky enough to be selected. So, mm -hmm. and, and it's, you know, it's a strange framing in that I guess, you know, it's a volunteer role. So I am the ACPA 2019 convention chair. So what does that mean? How does that translate into like real world talk? Um, it means that, um, back in October of 2017, um, I put in an application, you know, there was a call for any member of ACPA to apply to be a convention chair. And, um, I went through some interviews with some leadership, you know, um, the ink who would have been the president who would currently Dr. Jamie Washington, who is the president of our association currently, um, was on that interview. There's equity and inclusion representatives from the governing board and folks from the international office, um, talked about sort of what my ambitions were. You know, I was also on the, uh, the 2018 convention team for Houston. And so, um, I had a, a fairly good idea sort of of what the role was, or at least I thought I did. Um, 
And that started the process. So I was luckily selected. That started a lot of meetings. I helped pick a steering team. So within the convention planning team, we're all volunteers. Um, folks applied to sort of be part of the steering team. And those are sort of leads around important areas. So member engagement and marketing. So the outward facing part of all the work we do. So how we message communication, communicate to all the members. Um, equity and inclusion team, our program team who does all the curricular sort of build outs, all the educational sessions, um, our convention experiences who do volunteers and all our major events and our speakers. Um, we have an indigenous advisor to our team sort of helping us center um, indigenous issues um, and sort of working through sort of how we sort of unpack as an association and as a convention planning team, um, decolonizing our ways of thinking and our ways of operating. Um, am I missing someone? Oh, and then my admin team. So um, there is a lot of administrative management, right? So there's like 10 of us on the steering team, and then each of them has a team. So hmm. overall, I think we're at like 67 people. Um, That's so many uh, people. It's a lot of people. <laughs> um so those folks sort of, and they're all coordinators. And so where the coordinators sort of sit is they each hold like one element of convention, right? So there's one coordinator for volunteers and a coordinator for local arrangements and a coordinator for um, research papers and a coordinator for social media and a coordinator for um, assessment. Um, and so they each sort of hold a specific element of the convention punny team. Now, one of my major roles is making sure that all the various uh, coordinators and chairs all sort of communicate with each other. Cause a lot of time, just like in higher education or in any office, uh, our work can become siloed. Uh, and so my job is to make sure that this great group of volunteers over here that's doing work is making sure that the, the branding people know about it and they can sort of push it out. So for me, um, it is drawing the connections and, uh, making sure that you know no one is intentionally sort of doing something that could cause harm or trauma because you know people with good intentions mm -hmm. make mistakes, right? Like yeah. There's it's part of our humanity, <laughs> um, even though we don't want it to be. And so one of the things is you know making sure we are centering inclusion in its greatest definition and its broadest way of being applicable. Um, so yeah, that's. Do you, I mean, so I mean the timeline is sort of we picked our team. That would have been, we visited Boston, which is where we're going to be here in just a couple weeks. March Hell 3rd. yeah. Yeah. Um, really hoping for all this cold to maybe dissipate and it'll be like nice and temperate. Maybe. <laughs> I know, I know that's, that's a, that's a big wish. Um, but March 3rd through 6th, we'll, we'll be downtown at the Heinz Convention Center. So um, super excited. You know, the planning process has been at times felt like a like a uh, sprint and at times it's felt like you know i'm just jogging to trying to get to the next pace um i'm not sure how much into the weeds you know we want to get into sort of what that process has been but um you know there's um, been really go ahead oh no i was just gonna say i'm i'm pretty interested in um, some of the things that are going to be featured there, like sure. every year we have a bunch of we have a bunch of great speakers, and yep. this year I'm really excited about who you have. Can you explain to folks who you're, who we're bringing this year? Yep. So you know, uh, our, one of the things we really tried to do is this idea of um, finding ways for people whose stories and narratives maybe are not part of the dominant uh, 
worldview of everyone. So uh, Francesca Ramsey, who is um, just wrote a, a book um, within the last year, but is really known for did this series uh, sponsored by MTV called MTV Decoded, sort of centering, um, unpacking like you know the history of the word Caucasian and how it has racist roots, right? It's a bunch of sort of short vignettes that sort of really went viral on social media. Um, also is sort of known to sort of be on a lot of panels, just sort of centering identity inclusion and um, how we uplift voices of marginalized community. So um, super excited for her to sort of kick off our, our time together that Sunday on the 3rd of March. Um, we have some... Um, featured presenters um, who are authors coming to sort of talk on Monday and Tuesday. Um, I will need to just, I'm trying to, I don't want to get their names wrong, Um, but I'll, I'll find them here real quick. Um, The, the, the closing speaker is someone um, it's actually two folks who uh, super excited about. So I don't know if folks are familiar with the FX hit TV show pose. Um, It's sort of about the, um, culture in the 80s, the house culture um, around voguing and um, centers, you know, what the show's been really known for is it centers trans and gender queer characters, but that are played by trans and gender queer mm-hmm. actors, right? People whose identities align with um, the characters they're playing and can give voice and uh, life. What a novel <laughs> idea. Letting yeah, them right. Play so, themselves. Yeah, like, and, you know, the importance of making sure that. Um, the stories we are told are told with as authentic of a voice as possible. So the, one of the lead creators of that, Stephen Canals, um, who actually, you know, one of the reasons I know Stephen is that Stephen actually started out in student affairs. Um, so Stephen and I um, served on, well, what is now the Coalition for Sexuality and Gender Identities, but was a different name a couple of life cycles ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were both coordinators together. Um, oh, and wow. Stephen worked at, worked in housing um, in the New York system. Um, knew that he wanted to get into f- um, film and um, sort of pursued his passion. You know, went to school, has been writing, and you know, then became you know this got picked up by Ryan Murphy and FX, and you know it's been recognized by a lot of awards. So what Stephen's going to come talk about is this idea of um, how we create space and opportunities for folks whose stories we don't ever get to hear, right? Mm-hmm. And how the parallels between um, doing that in film and in television is is just as important as us creating those spaces on our campuses. Um, because the reality is, is that our campuses sometimes just reflect the greater world around us, right? And that it takes work to disrupt um, a world where it's much easier for the dominant narratives to just keep being retold, right? That's the way the world wants it. That's the way power systems want it to be. Um, but if we do good work, right, we do intentional, purposeful work where we where we say, no, this, it is important for uh, genderqueer folks, for trans folks, for folks of color, um, for folks with disabilities, you know, folks with other minoritized or marginalized identities. Um, we want your voice here. We need your voice here. Come be in community with us. Um, that there's a parallel. Stephen's actually going to be in dialogue with um, Romeo Jackson, who is a student affairs professional, um, who sort of is immersed in, in this work and holds a lot of these identities. So we wanted to do a dialogue to sort of try something new, right? That's yeah. also part of being in convention is to, to do new things, to, to push those around us to sort of um, do deeper 
uh, more engaged thinking, not necessarily new thinking, but just new ways of approaching sort of the way we do our work around education. So that's awesome. I love Thanks. hearing all of that. I'm that's such a wild connection that you have. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's really been amazing. It's you know he's uh, he's always been amazing at sort of you know centering marginalized folks and to see someone in Hollywood doing this work right you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's always great when you can see someone living out their dreams um and so you know it's one of those things where like i don't tout it too much like i i knew you when but i think the ability to have connect and the chance to get to see him again right so you yeah. know we have not seen each other in you know probably five to seven years um so the opportunity to connect with him and um, have him share his story and the work that he does is i think is really powerful so yeah, that's super great. Well, you talk about the uh, like a good function of conventions is trying new things, trying yep. to reinvent like ideas at the conventions. Last year, um, when we were in Houston, uh, the caucusing aspect was in, was introduced, and I really enjoyed the caucusing aspect because it allowed a bunch of people to kind of just sit uh, in some discomfort or even become more comfortable with a lot of challenging topics. And we got, especially like the folks who were in the, the groups on whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember just getting in some really good challenging conversations. Can you explain to folks like the purpose of why we do these caucusing um, sure. spaces and uh, yeah, no, that that's about it. Cool. Um, yeah. So uh, back in, um, the fall of 2017, ACPA um, uh, had a group of professionals, including those on the governing board and with the help of the international office, wrote and released the strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization. What does that mean for us as like folks committed to this work and as part of the association? It was uh, a centering of um, that if we are going to say that we are committed to justice work and that for full inclusion of all people, that we as an association, as a folks working in higher education, really need to do some deep community-based dialogue work around the role that racism and colonizing uh, colonization has played in our lives and in our work, right? And not like a history sense, like that's important, right? Like what has the history of it been? But like what is the lived, how does... Um, white supremacy sh- and colonized thinking show up in the way that I operate every day, even in my summer conference work, right? Mm-hmm. And so that has been a journey. So one of the things, you know, I was part of the 2018 team was like what we've seen at other, um, so if you've ever heard of the Social Justice Training Institute, um, that is an immersive five-day uh, justice-based institute Um where they do race-alike caucusing. That's a, like a core component. Um, if you've ever been to the White Privilege Conference, um, they do race-alike caucusing. And so some of us had been to these conferences and were like, this is what we need, right? Um, one of the things I know is that um, I can read a bunch of articles, right? I can go hear a bunch of people talk, but until I show up in community with people who look like me and share how white supremacy and whiteness and white dominance um, have operated within me and those I care about and those I work with. Um, I'm not really doing the work, right? I can always, it's much easier to other 
racial justice work, but it is a lot harder to center it in your own lived experience and realize that it's been working within you and you probably have done not great things, especially um, as a white person, right? I don't think I'm named that, but you know, I do identify as white. And um, so, yeah, I participated in all three caucuses. I think why we think this work is important is that um, I think for folks of color, um, they talk about racism a lot, right? And the way it impacts their life. The problem is, is that white folks don't really talk about it. We don't talk about our role in it. And unless you like, this is like a core component of your work. Um, people don't see the connection with why we need to center that. And I think when we do sort of get into spaces where we dialogue on racial justice and decolonization, um, if it's a mixed race group, what I have observed for me personally is that folks of color take care of white folks, right? You know, if we are vulnerable, they will reinforce that we are like they'll commend us or other white people will commend us. Right. Um, And so I think these race alike caucuses, which is important, right? That these are um, people who identify within a certain racial identity. So all white folks are in a room together in groups of seven to 10, um, centering with a moderator sort of like how whiteness has showed up in them in this conference how does white supremacy show up in their work when did they realize they were white um that work happens with white folks but at the same time there are spaces for folks of other racial groups so asian pacific islander um east asian folks right uh native uh indigenous folks can be in a room uh latinx folks in a room black african-american um so uh, mixed uh, folks of sort of uh, biracial, multiracial. Um, so we have tried to create as all the spaces that we can. Um, we are doing it once each day of conference. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, um, different times of the day. Um, hopefully folks show up, right? Uh, you know, we found it pretty hopping last year. Yeah, it was, it was good. I think, you know, I would I would say that, you know, it was really a really great turnout. Um, but, you know, I think when we looked back at the numbers, it was about half of conference attendees showed up in those spaces. Um, I don't expect everyone to be ready or to, to know that this is the space they need, right? But I do hope that there's like that little voice inside someone who's like, man, I really want to do better work around racial justice and decolonization, that they would take a little bit of a risk and show up. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone who participated, and, you know, I'm sure there's someone, right? So maybe you'll get an email after they hear this, um, <laughs> is uh, maybe someone didn't get something out of it. But I, I don't know anyone who I interacted with who didn't get at least something out of this, right? Yeah. Something they unpacked in a deeper way. They made a deeper connection around what their race means and their, their work around justice. So um, we think that's an important part, right? Like, we do not learn in a vacuum. We learn in community with other people. And so this uh, caucus is a way to sort of make those connections a little bit more explicit. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I'm excited to be a moderator this year. Um, It's a pretty exciting honor to get to do that. Um, I didn't end up proposing any sort of sessions or anything, but uh, I am excited to get to do that because I had a lot of fun challenging folks because one of the big things that comes to my mind a lot when we have these conversations on race is how professionalism, like standard normalized professionalism is very whitewashed. And so like I, I have a lot of feelings when we go to conferences and um, I'm sure that'll be another thing that I use to guide conversations this year. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's something as, um, as we engage in this work as an association, like what it means to feel like people need to wear a tie and a suit, right? Like what, what does that mean? And is that really how people learn best? And for some people, maybe it is right. Mm-hmm. Um, but how can we create a culture where no, like, however I show up in my body, um, is accepted and welcomed and not questioned and that my um, ability to be seen as someone who contributes significantly to our profession. If I show up in a t-shirt and jeans, like there's no question of sort of what my authority is, right. Or Mm -hmm. what my intelligence is. And we know that under the surface that that is a real thing. Right. And so um, we're continuing to unpack what that means for ourselves as an association. So. And that's why I love ACPA. Yeah. We get to crush it. Um, one last thing. Do you have anything else you'd like to add for folks who uh, are going to be coming to ACPA or folks who might not be coming but still might want to know little extras from you? Yeah. I, uh, just a couple tidbits. I mean, it's the 95th anniversary of ACPA. Super excited to celebrate that. Um, you know, the 95th your their 95th anniversary is a ruby anniversary so you'll see a lot of red everywhere we go um like we're the, excited like the for, sweater you're wearing for it yeah 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 that's sort of you'll if, if you notice you'll see that in our branding it's been a lot of red um so another exciting thing is we're doing some intergenerational panels sort of of like um a panel on monday i think it's happening over three concurrent sessions where we'll have a, a group of student affairs and higher ed professionals all representing different generations but sort of looking at the same functional area and talking about how their work has evolved Hmm. Uh, sort of like you know someone who's just started working in lgbt um sort of advocacy and someone who's been doing it for 30 years right Hmm. and so that that's something we're super excited about um i don't know I, i i think we're gonna it's a everything's connected in Boston. I don't know for folks who are coming, the good news is everything's connected by sort of a skywalk. And so, you know, you can leave your coat in the room and it's, you know, if we do get snow and cold that, you know, there's the ability to sort of move within sort of all the event space. So we're, we're super excited. You know, we got great turnout for program submissions. I think, um, you know, trying to make sure that justice based things and especially with racial justice and decolonizing that we're centering those topics so that, you know, it's not just something we're doing in caucuses and we're not just talking about the strategic comparative, but that we are making sure that the sessions reflect that, you know, that orientation of um, engaging those topics in a deeper way. Hell yeah. Okay. It's time for the music break portion of the podcast. My favorite portion of the podcast. If I'm going to be completely honest, I love just sharing new music with people. It's one of my favorite things in the world. This week, I am sharing the brand new EP called Retrograde from the band Point North. Point North is currently on the road with Sharp Tooth and As It Is, currently getting to hang out with my best friend every day, which is fucking sick. And uh, the band has been getting a lot of attention for this EP. I love seeing how many folks are checking it out because it really does live up to the hype that they're getting right now. So if you end up liking these tunes, go find the band on Spotify and get the album through Apple Music. 
right in the iTunes store. Those are the two places you can get it. It's also streaming on YouTube if you want to listen to it there. Those are the best places I can suggest. I don't know about any physical releases of it right now, but digitally it is very much available. I was streaming it a bunch this weekend. I think it's great. And I'm going to play you the song uh, Gasoline off of it right now. It's catchy as hell, and I hope that you enjoy it. Here we go. Here's Gasoline by Point North. Gasoline by Point North. If you like what you heard, find the EP on Spotify, find it on YouTube, find it on Apple Music. It is called Retrograde. It is very good, uh, a very great early release for the year. And if you're uh, willing to check out the band live, there are still 
uh, slew of shows that they're going to be heading back across the country so that you can go check them out alongside Sharp Tooth and as it is. And you can say hey to Katie Ham if that's something that you want to do. Uh, I would recommend it because they're a pretty cool person. But if you have some time and you have some desire to go see a bunch of cool bands, go do it. All right. Now let's finish up this conversation with Bill Huff. One final sesh, one final segment. I like to call it the lightning round. Okay. Uh, Off the top of your head questions. Uh, You can take as long as you'd like, but I like to get the first things that pop in because those tend to be the most natural. (laughs) Okay. Let's do it. What's your favorite color? Yellow. Oh, nice. That's also in the branding. Yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. Uh, It's one of the cool things about being chairs. I got to like pick the colors i know that sounds weird but for an aesthetic person it was an important part of of the job so i totally get it yeah uh what about your favorite food uh gummy bears oh nice you're one of the few people to say a candy (laughs) oh my sweet tooth is ridiculous it's off the charts that's fair i would take like three gummy bears over like three bags of chips nice uh okay what's your favorite book um, probably The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Mm, nice. it's, a, it's by Stephen Chabowski. Mm-hmm. It came out. They made a movie out of it. Mm-hmm. The book's better than the movie. But that's Classic. Usually... Uh, what about a favorite movie? Favorite movie? Probably Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, thank you. It's so good. It's so good. It's I, I've never met someone who I didn't feel like I could be a really close friend with who didn't love that movie. Like, yeah. if you love that movie, we're probably, like, connected in a deep soul way. Can so. I get anyone some coffee and bars? <laughs> I also just love Will, Will Sasso. He's like, I know who the widow is. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Uh, I, it's got some of the best one-liners. I've, I've never gotten sick of watching that movie. Oh, it's so. so good. And I kind of watched it on a whim once in college, and then it just became a favorite movie. Uh, what yeah. about TV? What do you binge? Oh, gosh. I mean, Great British Baking Show did not sound like conventional, but I it is like literally the epitome of humanity at its best. These people are so kind to each other. And I love cooking. So the combination of cooking and like centering kindness, which you don't really see in television, um, it's, it's really like it makes me feel so good when I watch it. It's sort mm-hmm. of... I've cried a lot because it's just genuinely just the best. So if you have not watched it, folks, go out and watch it because it'll just make you feel better about the world. So mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. What about um, the favorite, your favorite place you've ever traveled? Um, the thing that jumps to my head first if this is lightning round is um, I was lucky enough to go to Egypt and Cairo um last march so i have a friend who works um in saudi arabia he works in higher ed he works at the king abdullah university um and uh i had to go to dublin for a really good friend's wedding and he had said i was like well i'm already in dublin he's like well you pick a place and let's go and so we met up in cairo and spent four days That's um wild. climbing into the middle of pyramids and getting to see the sphinx and it was the most worldview shattering, right? It was the least, you know, Western European way of living. Um, 
and it really made me fortunate for the things I have and made me realize that there's a lot I don't know mm-hmm. uh, as a person. So, Yeah, that's so great. Um, and I like to end on this one. Uh, music you're listening to. What do you like all time and maybe currently? Oh, God, that's... Uh, my music taste is real eclectic. Uh, I'm sure everyone says that, right? Um, songs. So right now... Um, I just saw this, uh, it's, uh, there was a show, it's on Netflix called Alex Strangelove. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. It's, uh, it's sort of centering like uh, the discovery of one's own sexual identity. Super cute, like really lovely, cried my eyes out, but the soundtrack is really great. So I've been listening to that a lot. And one song in specifically, it's called I Know a Place by Muna. Hmm. Never heard of them before, but I tend to like find a song that I love and... I'm a person who can listen to the same song for like three hours. Um, Dang. And I'd like, so that's, that's one of my jams. I mean, I love soundtracks hmm. like the Hercules soundtrack. It's my jam, the waitress, the musical soundtrack. Those are things I like work. If I'm having a bad day, I will put Hercules, the Disney animated soundtrack on. <laughs> and that's how my people around me know that I maybe have having a rough day. Cause I'm using it to pick myself up. So that's so that, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so ridiculous. I think that's what I love about it. It's, you know, life. I like when life catches me unexpected. And that's mm-hmm. what I love about that soundtrack is you don't expect Disney to, you know, have black centered black gospel singers. And it's just really lovely. Um, and the energy is really contagious. So that's so great. You're one of the first to also mention soundtracks. <laughs> It's I, that's I'm not really a listen to a whole album person except when that's it comes fair. to the soundtracks. That's the only time I do it. So that's fair. And I'm yeah. an albums guy, as you can tell by all my goddamn records. <laughs> I'm in a relationship with an albums guy. Like nice. Loves he's a completist. He likes to listen to something from beginning to end. So yeah, I can relate. Well, yeah. Bill, thank you so much for spending thank some time you. with me. Really appreciate the chance to connect and talk a little bit about who I am and the work we're doing. So yeah, it's really uh, exciting. And I'm going to see you in like a month. We will be in commute. It's like, what is today? Today is the 29th. The 29th. So I will actually be there in 29 days. I fly in on the morning of the 28th. So yeah, it's going to be so much fun. I'll see you soon. Look forward to being in community with you. So yeah. Bye. Bye. All right, that's the end of the podcast. We did it. Another episode in the books. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bill Huff. If you're going to ACPA, make sure that you can say hey to him. Say hey to me. If you're in Boston, you're going to have a good time. We that's just what we do here in Boston. We have a good we have a good time. I uh, hope you also enjoyed the tunes from Point North. Retrograde is the new EP and it is out now. Find it on Apple Music, find it in the iTunes store, find it on Spotify. Get it in your ear holes. Uh, also, make sure to go to connectedu.network and learn about all the brand new, wonderful podcasts that exist in the world of higher education, the network that we are a part of, the network that we punk up. Uh, we punk up this education space pretty well, I think, uh, in terms of the guests and the conversations that we have uh, in this podcast. Also, make sure to go to patreon.com slash artofsurvival or just go to artisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartisartis
in the know about all the stuff that we do with Art of Survival so that you can uh, see all the great resources and the community that we've created around healing uh, for trauma survivors and sexual assault survivors and people in recovery. Uh, We just love doing this work and we hope that we can continue doing it as long as possible. I also know it is a very tough time for a lot of people right now, so I want to throw out a quick plug for the crisis text line. Uh, Go If you feel like you or someone you know needs to just talk to someone, but talking on the phone is too hard and texting's a little bit easier, text HELLO to 741741. That's HELLO to 741741, and you'll get connected with someone who can help. It's a very wonderful uh, text line, and I think it's saved a lot of people's lives. So if this is something that you think you or someone else might need, please use it. Crisis text line. They're fantastic. That's all I have. Uh... It is uh, the beginning of February. I'm excited. School year is underway. I'm having a lot of fun. Just taking it easy uh, and learning a whole bunch from my students already. My wrist is doing well. That's a quick update from the uh, accident a few uh, whenever I gave that update, I think in December. But my wrist is doing well. Uh, hopefully I don't have to have a pin put in my thumb, but that's something we'll learn soon. I'll keep you updated on that too. Oh! accidentally hit my desk with my knees and that hit the microphone sorry about that but you know i'm done now so you don't have to hear me ramble anymore let's uh finish this out with some more point north hell yeah i'll see you next week until then let's get to work now you're